Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we do rejoice this morning in the great privilege we have to come together and worship our Savior, who we recognize is resurrected on this day. Lord, great joy in our hearts and thanksgiving that Jesus not only died on the cross for our sins, but he arose on the third day and ultimately ascended back to sit at your right hand in his rightful place of authority and judgment. And so, Father, we give you great praise this morning with these thoughts, and thank you for the privilege we have to look into the scriptures, to gain understanding and knowledge. Lord, we pray that you would guide our thoughts this morning, that we might yield to the truth of the scriptures, that we might grow in our understanding Father, we might ultimately think, according to these lines, uh, in the days in which we live, troubled days, lots going on in the world, but Lord, we know that as you were in this passage in Daniel, you still are in total control, and so we give you praise and thanksgiving and glory in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So this is week number 44 in our look at the book of Daniel and we're still over in chapter 9 and can't seem to move out of these first couple of verses of this passage and goes from 24 down through 27 but we're stuck in verse 25 so I'll just begin by reading verses 24 and 25 to reorient ourselves to this passage so Daniel 9 beginning in verse 24 Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And so we're in verse 25, and we've noted a, a couple of things here. The, the first thing we looked at was that this whole passage, this vision, this message from God uh, to Daniel through the agent of uh, Gabriel the angel, is given not to confuse Daniel, not to make him wonder what's going to happen in the future, but so that he might gain understanding and discern what is going to be. And so this passage that many say, you ought to just throw it out, it's too hard to understand, you can't really know what it's speaking to, it's all allegory, it's just uh, symbolism, and it doesn't really mean anything in the tangible world in which we live. Um, Gabriel says that's not true. Gabriel says, no, this is given so that you might gain knowledge and that you might discern what is taking place. And so um, we believe that. And as this was given to Daniel so that he might gain understanding and discern, so it is, I believe, given to believers today so they might do the same. And then the second thing that we noticed is that the translators have translated uh, for us this term weeks, 70 weeks. Matter of fact, this passage is most famously known 
as the 70 weeks of Daniel. Whereas in reality, that, um, that translation, uh, a literal translation, would be 70 units of seven. And so 490 units um, is what's really being said here. Um, that term weeks gets people sideways sometimes. But when you think in terms of time and the clock and things happening, the only thing that happens um, in units of seven are weeks established by God in the creation, six days in which he created the earth, the seventh day which he rested. So he established this thought of weeks. And I do think that um, weeks is an okay translation. I just wish they would have just left it 70 units of seven like they did back in chapter four with uh, Nebuchadnezzar when they just said seven periods of time and didn't try to say week, you know, uh, one week of time. So why they do that here, I'm not real sure. A lot of men more intelligent than I am sat down and came up with this, but nevertheless, it literally means 70 units of seven. So I think 490 units is correct, and I do, I'm okay with calling them weeks. What we did was we looked in Daniel, other passages. We looked at that one of Nebuchadnezzar. We looked in chapter 8. We looked in chapter 12 and saw that Daniel understood what um, a day was. We talked about the phases of the moon and that the Jews used the moon to set their calendar. So Daniel understood the concept of months and he understood the concept of years. And uh, if you noticed last night, it was a full moon. So it should bring up different thoughts in your mind when you see full moons now. So this is the beginning of a new month um, for the Jews. Um, and so the only thing time-wise that seems to fit here is to say that these 490 units correspond to years. And we'll see as we go through these, um, these uh, thoughts today that that seems to make the most sense, and we'll come back to it again next week. So we talked about part of this third um, part of verse 25 last week where Gabriel says that from the issuing of a decree to the time when Messiah the Prince comes, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks or 483 years if you believe that the days rarely represent years. And so the Jews should have gained some understanding from this. They should have been looking for the return of their Messiah because here it's pinpointed when it will be. It'll be 69 weeks from the time when this vision was given to Daniel. And Daniel wrote this book, while, obviously while he was still alive, and so the Jews had this book, and this pinpoints the time. So, you know, if you thought it was days, then very soon you would realize, okay, days wasn't right because we came to uh, 490 days, you know, not too long after this passage was given. So days didn't make sense. Even if you go to weeks, which would have been several years, um, you know, 10 years from when this was given, you'd have realized, okay, it wasn't weeks that we were talking about. 
So it has to be something longer than that. It wasn't months. I mean, you could do the same thing there. That's what would only have been six years. And none of these things happened within those first six or seven years. As a matter of fact, the temple wasn't even built um, for 20 years after this. And so you would have realized, okay, he wasn't talking about days or weeks or months. Uh, could have been talking about years. And if you were a Jew, you should have understood that. And then that after 483 years, the Messiah would have come. So when Jesus was born, they should have been looking for him. And indeed, in a general way, they were looking for the Messiah. He just didn't match up to their expectations. Um, but they should have known, I mean, um, by, out of this passage, just like we should know some things out of this passage. So we took this thought of 69 weeks from the time when the decree was given for the Jews to return. And we know it's talking about Jews because in verse 24, uh, Gabriel says specifically, this decree of God, the 70 weeks, are given for Daniel's people and their city. So we know it pertains to the Jews and to Jerusalem. And that's what he's talking about. So somewhere there has to be a decree that the Jews could return and rebuild Jerusalem has to come at some point. And so you can read through all of Daniel, look at every word and passage, and you won't find it in Daniel because it's not there. And so you go and you know this, that it had to be written after Daniel wrote his book because it was still speaking of the future. So it has to be someone who wrote after Daniel did. And if you search the scriptures, you'll eventually find it in the book of Ezra. And we turned here last week, but I want to walk through all of the decrees that we see in Ezra so that we can do all of this in one lesson and have it all in view. So I'm going to review some of the things we looked at last week, but I'll try and do it fairly quickly. And if you were here, then you heard um, a lot of these things. We know that or believe that Ezra is the one who wrote First and Second Chronicles and then wrote the book of Ezra because the last two verses in Second Chronicles match exactly the first two verses in Ezra. So he's just continuing the same uh, theme where he had been writing about the history of the Jews as he comes to the book of Ezra. And in the very opening passage, we get this decree that is given. And this decree is given by Cyrus, king of Persia. So reading in Ezra 1.1, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, 
which is in Jerusalem. So here you have the king of Persia giving a proclamation to the Jews, a decree that they should go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God. Matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar believes that he has been appointed by God to build this house. And if you continue to read through here, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, um, Cyrus gives them all of the utensils that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem before he destroyed it, years before he destroyed it, and took them and scattered them among the temples of his gods in Babylonia. And so Cyrus gathers all those together and gives those to the Jews. He gives them gold and silver. And then he says that nothing should be taxed of the Jews. And matter of fact, the taxes that are taken up on the other side of the river, that would be the Euphrates River, should be given to them so they might rebuild the house of God. So he provided everything they needed and released them to go back. And so this was the year, the first year of Cyrus, which would be the first year after Babylon, Babylonia fell, Babylon fell, in, which fell in 538 B.C. So this is somewhere 538, 539 B.C., when Cyrus makes this decree. So the question is, is this the right decree? Well, if you keep reading in the book of Ezra, chapter 2 enumerates all the people who went with Zerubbabel when he went back under the command of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Now, Zerubbabel is the leader, but there's a lot of people with him. We looked at this last week. There's 50,000 people at least with him. If you counted the wives and the children, there's probably 100,000 people who make this journey that takes months to go from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Probably took four, five, six months for them to make that trek. So they get there and they begin to rebuild, but the people who live in that area, not necessarily in Jerusalem and Judah, but around that area um, are pretty upset at this because here come the Jews, 100,000 of them, back in to populate the cities of Judah and to rebuild the temple. And they, of course, know from their ancestry that it was the temple um, of God that caused Nebuchadnezzar to come against not only Judah, but all of that region and utterly leave it desolate. And so... Um, we, we have all these people coming, and they begin to build the altar. They actually resurrect the altar and begin the sacrifices, the burnt offerings first, and then the sacrifices that must, must be given morning and evening. Um, as according to the law given to Moses, God desired and commanded uh, sacrifice every morning, which would be given about 9 a.m., and every evening, which would be given about 3 p.m. And so they begin that, um, and then they put their hands to work to build the temple. They, they start work on the temple. And in Ezra chapter 3, in the seventh month after they arrived, they finish the foundation well, they build the altar, and then they start the sacrifices, and they have the Feast of Booths. So they're, they're into Jewish life, 
and it's seven months after they got there, so they've had time to settle in and get life into order, maybe plant some fields in the crops so they won't starve to death, and life is beginning again. And then we come to chapter 4 in Ezra, which is pretty confusing. Um, three kings of Persia are named in this chapter. You have, the, um, you have Cyrus, you have Darius, who came a couple kings after Cyrus, and then you have Artaxerxes, who came several kings later. And um, you have people in opposition to the Jews in Jerusalem, and so it, it spans a significant amount of time but I think the main point of chapter 4 is that through their first so many years, and it goes on for a while, there was always opposition to the Jews to do what Cyrus had decreed they go back and do. Matter of fact, because of the opposition, the work will come to a stop for many years, in fact. And so the point, of I believe, of chapter 4 is that not only the people in the land surrounding Jerusalem, all of Judah and beyond, but even all the way back to the king of Persia, at times opposed the Jews rebuilding the temple. Until it was pointed out to them that Cyrus had decreed it, they would work against the Jews to rebuild this temple. And so that chapter 4 can be very confusing. I'll be the first to admit it. But I think when you think of it in that terms, that this is speaking of the opposition and showing that there always was opposition, then it begins to make some sense. Now, the Jews get to the point where they get, uh, in the building of the temple, all of the foundation laid. And... You know, you have to lay the foundation before you can build the temple on top of it. And we'll see today how Cyrus said it was to be constructed because he gave them very specific details. And so they get the foundation laid and all the people rejoice. All of them, that is, except for the old priests who remember what the temple looked like before it was destroyed, the one that Solomon built that was ornate, overlaid with gold, and um, very beautiful place. And this temple that Zerubbabel, or at least the foundation, is in comparison pitiful. It's, uh, it's nowhere near what the original temple was. It's the same size, but it's nowhere near what the original temple was. And so the priests who had seen the Temple of Solomon Instead of rejoicing, they were weeping. And they were weeping with sorrow, the scripture says, because this is pitiful compared to what was there before. And so that gets us all the way over to chapter 5, which in chapter 5, you have the two prophets, Haggai and Zacharias, come on the scene in Jerusalem and begin to prophesy. Now, this is some... 18 years after the Jews first returned under Zerubbabel. So the temple, the altar was built, the foundation of the temple was laid. And if you remember, the, uh, when we looked at this, the altar is in front of the temple, it's not inside the temple. 
is outside because that's where you do all the blood sacrifices and then you take the burnt offering into the temple. And so the altar's built, the foundation of the temple is laid, and then all work stops because of the opposition and because the kings of Persia are against them. And for 18 years, they camp there and nothing go happens until Zechariah and Haggai come on the scene and begin to prophesy and begin to, you can go read their, their prophecies, right, in, in the books of Haggai and Zechariah. And um, we won't take the time to do that, but it encourages Zerubbabel to restart the work and to begin again um, to build. Now, Cyrus is gone, and the king now of Persia is Darius. Okay, and we've talked about Darius and who that is. It's not the same Darius that was there when Babylon first fell. This is someone else called Darius, um, which is probably just a, a title instead of a person's name. And Darius doesn't know about what Cyrus decreed, or at least apparently he doesn't, because the, those opposing the Jews in chapter 5, after the work has begun, come again and say, you can't do this. We won't allow this. And so we're going to write to Darius the king to get him to stop you again. So they write a letter to Darius the king, but the Jews, they include in it that the Jews claim that Cyrus gave them permission to do this. So Darius isn't a fool. When he gets the letter, he makes a decree that they search all the archives to see if this is true. Did Cyrus indeed write um, a decree? And so he in chapter 6, Darius, my scripture says, Darius finds the decree. So Darius finds the decree that Cyrus made. Now, when, he, when we read this, there are more details given here than we first saw in Ezra chapter 1. Read it with me. Ezra 6, beginning in verse 1. Then King Darius issued a decree, and search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Egbatana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and there was written on it as follows. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be re rebuilt, and its foundation be retained, its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits, with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers, and let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their place in the temple in Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. So he finds the decree of Cyrus. So Darius makes his own decree following up on the decree of Cyrus. And so um, 
this decree is given in verse 8. This is Darius. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of the house of God. The full cost is to be paid to the people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the province beyond the river and that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail, that they may, make, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issued a decree that any that man that violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or peoples who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Now, so Darius goes even further than Cyrus, right? He clearly again says all the taxes from all the provinces on the other side of the Euphrates River are to be given to the Jews so they might rebuild this temple. And you're to give them bulls and rams and goats and all these other things. And then he says, if you deny my decree, then we're going to take a timber from your house and impale you with it. So you're going to be killed. You're going to be, and your house is going to be made a refuse, which means all your family is going to be homeless. And we're going to make it a refuse heap. So they'll have no place to go, no place to live, and we're going to impale you and kill you. So he goes even further than Cyrus. Cyrus never talked about killing people who opposed them, but Darius does. So you can imagine the opposition says, okay, you can build your temple. And so there is no opposition, and so the, the work on the temple goes on. But we're looking for a decree. So the question becomes, is it the decree of Cyrus in 538 B.C., or is it now the decree of Darius, which was given in 520 B.C., 18 years later? And so you keep reading, trying to understand what is given in the book of Ezra, and ultimately... Um, you'll come to a third decree that's given to cause just a little more confusion. So we have King Darius given his decree in chapter 6, and then you come to Ezra 7. Now Ezra 7 is all about Ezra himself going to Jerusalem. But Ezra didn't go to Jerusalem until the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. All right, now you can look in what I gave you that Artaxerxes is um, really three kings after um, Cyrus. You can't really count um, Bard um, Bardia because he was an imposter and he was only in the throne for two months. And then they realized he was an imposter and Xerxes came, uh, um, Darius came and killed him and took the throne. 
And so after Darius, you then have Xerxes and then Artaxerxes. So this has been a while. And if you go to the seventh year of Xerxes, and, I mean Artaxerxes, and the reason I say that is because I'm trying to find it, um, where it says that it was the seventh year. Um, I think it's in verse 9. No, that's when they get there, so... Seven, thank you. Yeah, some of, um, some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Now, if you look at your sheet, that's like 458 B.C. Now, the prophecy of Darius was given in 520 B.C., so it's been like seven, 60 years since this prophecy was of Darius, or this decree by Darius was given. So there's this huge gap in Ezra. Ezra writes of the time that he wasn't there, like he did all the chronicles, out of the documents that he was privileged to, as a scribe, to be able to see. And now he writes of his own account. And there's 60 years in here. A little less than that, but close to 60 years of a gap. Now, if you read MacArthur, um, he says that this is where the book of Esther fits, is in those 60 years. Probably right, because of the names of the kings that are given uh, in the book of Esther. So, um, but anyway, we have Ezra, who comes on the scene and desires to go back to Jerusalem and his desire is a little different. It's not to rebuild the temple, because it's been rebuilt. It was finished in 516 B.C. by Zerubbabel. He desires to go back to teach the Israelites the law in which he is an expert, because he's a scribe, and he's studied all the documents. And so he's an expert in the law of Moses. And so he desires to go back and to teach them. But to do that, he goes to the king, Artaxerxes and asked for permission to go back and Artaxerxes gives him permission and makes this third decree that comes in the book of Ezra now beginning in verse 11 is this decree and this is what we're looking for we're looking for decrees and we have the one of Cyrus we have the one of Darius, and now here in Ezra 7, beginning in verse 11, we have another decree, this time by Artaxerxes, which, by the way, in chapter 4, opposed the building of the temple because he did not realize the things that he now does realize. And so here he gives his consent. Verse 11 of Ezra 7 now, this is a copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe and the law of the, of the God of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, 
according to the law of your God which is in your hand and to bring in the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all of their silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon along with the free will offering of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers, do with the rest of the gold and silver. You may do according to the will of your God. Also the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem the rest of the needs for the house of your God, for which you may have occasion to provide, provide it from the royal treasury. I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in, in the provinces beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to the hundred talents of silver, a hundred cords of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt as needed. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toil on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nathayim, or servants of the house of God. You, Ezra, according to the kingdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges, that they may judge all the people who are in the provinces beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, that you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of the goods or for imprisonment. So here is Artaxerxes, the third king of Persia, making a decree. Not only can Ezra go back, but Ezra is to be the governor of not only the province of, of Judah, but of all the other provinces around. And they're all to give the money to Ezra, and he is to do with it as it pleases his God. So this is quite a decree. And this is the third one we have. And now this one is given in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, which is 478 B.C. So we've got decrees all the way from 538 to 478, 90 years separating these decrees. And so the question as you read, Jude, as you read the, the book of Daniel is, which one is it? Which decree? Is it Darius? Is it Cyrus? Or is it Artaxerxes that we're to start counting? And so you're kind of left wondering, and men argue about this and squabble and have all kinds of heated debate, but I think the scriptures answers it for us. You don't have to go looking and thinking and wondering and, and 
how does this happen? I want you to notice something way back in Ezra 1. And you say, why would the kings of Persia do this? And we're given a hint in the very first word, first verse of Ezra. Notice what it says. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that's the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah wrote about. And then it says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So why does Cyrus give his decrees? Because God put it in his heart to do it. Now, there's a very interesting verse in chapter 6 of Ezra that I skipped over on purpose so we could go back to it now. Look at verse 14 of Ezra 6. This is the answer to which decree are we to follow. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Notice the decree is singular. It's not plural. The decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. But in front of that, what do you have? The command of God. So all of these decrees were given. Not, I mean, Darius did what he wanted to. Cyrus did what he wanted to. Artaxerxes did what he wanted to. They acted volitionally. They made their decrees. They did all that they did according to their own desires. But superintending over that is the command of God. You know, all the way back to Daniel 2, 2. It's God who sets the times and the epochs. He is the one who tears down kings and establishes kings. So according to the command of God, the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, and God put it in the heart of the Persian kings, at least three of them, Cyrus, Darius, and then Artaxerxes, to make decrees to build the house of God in Jerusalem. And this is all, in my view, based on verse 14, one big decree. They're not three different decrees. They're all the same decree by the command of God over the course of time. So where does the clock begin to tick? Does it begin with Cyrus or Darius or Artaxerxes? Well, I believe it's when the decree is complete. And that would be with Artaxerxes. That's the last decree that we have. Now, next week I'll take you into Nehemiah and show you that Nehemiah went back by the will of the king, same king, Artaxerxes, but without a decree. No decree given. Papers given, but no decree made to the whole province, the whole kingdom. And so a lot of people like to run to that fourth decree. They call it a decree given to Nehemiah, but I don't believe that's correct. And I'll show you why I don't believe that's correct next time.
But there's no denial that Nehemiah was sent back. He goes a few years after Ezra and builds the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. But he's not given a decree by Artaxerxes. So this is why I wanted to review and get it all in one picture. I believe that the decree, the time when the clock begins to tick, is the decree of Artaxerxes. Now, I've passed out a timeline. You need to bring that next week because we'll count from the time of when Artaxerxes gave his decree until we get to the BCs are gone and we're in the ADs now. And we'll look at that and um, make some comments about it, but not be dogmatic, okay? Um, I'm not a calendar expert by any means, but I can read, and I can read what calendar experts have written. When you, I'll just give you one thing. When you get to transition from B.C. to A.D., we first of all know that there were some errors made, and it's not exact. The second thing we know is there's no zero year. So when you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., that's not two years, that's one year. Because there is no zero year. So those things you have to keep in mind. And we know that the Jews set their years not by the King George's calendar, but by the cycle of the moons and the fields and the crops is how they determine when their years will be, as we discussed, right? I mean, this is a new month because last night was a new moon. And so this begins a new month. Um, in my mind, that means that Passover will be in 14 days. And then they'll have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, you won't find the Jews according to that calendar today because they changed all of that in the 5th century A.D., and they went to a set time instead of using the moon anymore. Now, they thought that was convenient, but I kind of like to think about the moon and the ancient Jews as opposed to what some man in the 5th century B.C. decided to do. And so, um, so the years don't correspond, but we'll look at them and talk about them and see what we can get out of it. all in exact according to his plan. And, I mean, if you go over to Revelation, which in a few years will be there, um, you, you come to the passage and you're like, why do all the kings give their kingdoms into the hands of the Antichrist? And it says it very clearly, because God put it in their hearts to do so. 
put it in their minds to do so. Yeah, I think he, I think he is. Right, and and why are we reading Daniel so that we might gain knowledge and discern, that we might understand what's happening in the world today. Are, are really, um, I don't want to say not concerned, because you should be concerned, but not overwhelmed by what's going on in the world. Because this is the truth, and God, uh, you know, I think the creator is sovereign over his creation, right? That's always true. And so what you have to do to get away from that is undermine that he's the creator, and that's what our world is doing today, right? That's what all the science is all about. And so, but he did create according to the account in Genesis, and he's still in control. And he ultimately will do with his creation whatever he well pleases, which is for his son to reign. And that will happen. Uh, it seems like sometimes it won't happen, but it will. And by the way, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, scriptures clearly say that. Um, if anything, we're in birth pains. And you women who've had a child know that it's not better at the end. It's worse than it is at the beginning. And so it intensifies. And so it will. Con that's how our world will go. It will intensify. But take hope because God is sovereign. Everything's going according to his plan. And his plan is wonderful. And... So that's where we'll end this morning. I appreciate your time. We'll pick up with the timeline next week.